One of the persistent challenges that the people of God have faced throughout all time is the pressure to conform to cultural norms and patterns that are contrary to God's nature and God's ways, God's character. From the earliest writings in the Bible, the Word of God to humanity has repeatedly warned the people of God to resist being conformed to the world and its systems of of thinking and acting. We can see this in God's direct speech to man and woman in the garden when he instructed them to resist the allure of beauty and wisdom and sustenance outside of his care. In God's speech to the nation of Israel through the prophet Moses and all of the other prophets of of the Old Testament uh, to resist the, the abusive economic and sexual pressures and practices of the foreign nations. We see it in Jesus' speech to the crowds when he's warning them against the hypocritical uh, teachings and practices of their leaders. And obviously we see this as well in the apostles' teachings to avoid loving the world or the things of the world, for they are not of God. One of the ways that God gives us to fight this world-conforming tendency that we have And one of the most important strategies that we have is is the work of renewing the mind. We even see this in our own culture with this increased emphasis on the importance of of mindfulness in staving off the effects of consumer culture, social media shaming, self-doubt, self-loathing, and other harmful social and mental mind patterns that we find ourselves in. Increasingly, we are seeing that what we believe and assume to be true about ourselves and the world, and often we think these things subconsciously, we see that they have a great degree of effect on our, on our mental lives and thus on every aspect of our, of our lives. From the very beginning, the Psalms have emphatically reflected this idea, teaching that the happy and prosperous person is the person who meditates on the law of God day and night. This meditation then shapes the the deep structures of our thinking and important uh, thought categories such as identity, meaning, purpose, happiness, belonging, value, morality. These kinds of ideas, which are are critically important for our mental and emotional well-being and, again, all of the daily actions of our lives. Now, the formation of daily meditation and the discipline of of daily meditation on the Word of God, I would say has always been a challenge. We see uh, in the scriptures where the the people of God failed to do this and they repeatedly uh, entered into idolatrous practices. And even for those who enjoy reading and studying and meditating, the discipline of doing this around God's Word is difficult. There are lots of other good things to do. There are lots of other things to enjoy uh, that pull us into to doing them rather than the, the sustained and seemingly unexciting work of meditating on the law of God. But over the last decade or so, in addition to this, the, just the challenge of that, that discipline, Another challenge to 
uh, having a mind renewed by the word of God, by the word of God, has emerged. Uh, Tim Keller brings up a recent book that he wrote uh, called How to Reach the West Again, just briefly mentions this idea of what he calls thin thinking. Now, I googled a little bit, and the only thing that came up under thin thinking was thinking thin, which is a mindfulness pattern that people are encouraged to do when they're trying to lose weight. That's not what we're talking about here. Thin thinking is the, is the consequence of not spending very much time in the formation of, of the deep structures of our mind. And with social media, the, the ways we think and how we think are, are easily obtained and, and quickly lost. One of, the, one of the realities that social scientists are, are seeing in the increased dependence upon social media is that we are less and less able to see things from the world from others' point of view, and we are increasingly seeing that if it's not true to ourselves, if it's not something that, that fits with our own uh, lens, we are quick to discard it. We are very uh, quickly becoming unable to show empathy. And so as a result of that, what's happening is that uh, ideas come in quickly and ideas leave quickly, and we are not spending the time needed uh, in the mental work of developing what we believe and why we believe it. And this thin thinking uh, has a significant effect uh, on the lives of Christians who are called to renew their minds and meditate on the law of God because this, this process of study and meditation and, and deep thinking uh, has a transformative effect. And so Keller argues that there are two consequences to this. He says the, the technology and the social media, uh, they're conveying the narratives and beliefs of our culture uh, and, and it, they're doing it in a way that's more powerful than any other way that we've ever seen. And second, it, it not only gives us different beliefs, so we're, we're, we're quickly adopting the, the views of the world in our lack, in our lack of spending the time in, in study and meditation on God's word. We're quickly absorbing uh, the ideals and narratives of the world, uh, and it's also changing the way that we form our ideas. And this then, in, in result, causes this, this thin thinking. Quickly formed ideas that are easily obtained and easily discarded through the growing lens of our own self and, and, and distrusting and shunning the perspectives of others. Well, if these things are true, here's what we're facing. The tendency for us to conform to the world's thinking in terms of what it thinks and how it thinks is going to be increasingly difficult to resist. It's happening more quickly, and it's happening more thoroughly. Second, we are going to be increasingly isolated in our own minds and worlds, seeing things how we choose to see them, and again, increasingly distant from the feelings of others. The formation and growth of local churches 
who are defined by the narrative of God's work, and we've spent time throughout this psalms looking at the importance of the, of the stories of, of Scripture and of God's work and how those form the larger narrative that we are to see our lives in. If we're not doing that, we're not going to have those, those deep and enduring and really millennia-long narratives that we see ourselves in. Churches that are defined by this narrative it's going to be increasingly difficult to, 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 to find them, um, and they're going to be increasingly rare. Christians are going to be more informed, Christians, excuse me, Christians that are more informed by the never-ending flow of information from the internet and social media are those whose minds and lives will be more characterized by unhappiness, disorder, and isolation, and depression, and, and all of the things that, we, that our social scientists are seeing are significant problems in, in moving forward in terms of mental health and, and happy and prosperous lives in our culture. Well, Psalm 119 is, is singularly focused on the power of God's word to provide the grounding that we need in the deep structures of our thinking, in search for happiness and prosperity, which secular philosophers and the biblical teaching have long recognized as the substance of our deepest pursuits, the Word of God provides unmatched resources in providing us with a sense of identity and meaning and purpose, uh, calling, morality, justice, and a sense of prosperity and happiness that we're longing for. Now, Psalm 119 is a long chapter. It's not only the longest chapter in the, in the Psalms, it's also the longest chapter in the Bible with over 2,400 words. To, to read the entire thing would take close to 30 minutes. So we've selected four of the 22 sections. It's, it's got 22 sections that are eight verses long uh, each. And so we've picked four, and, and it's a representative four sections that covers a lot of the contributions that the Word of God makes to us in the formation of minds that eventually lead to a, a life of prosperity and happiness that is pleasing to God and enjoyable for ourselves, and it is the consequence of God's work in our life. The first section, verses 1 through 8, is introductory, and it reflects the major themes of the Psalms to this point. And they begin with strong statements about what makes a happy person, as you could imagine. So the happy person does the following things, according to the beginning of Psalm 119. It says that their way is blameless. There's nothing that they can be accused of. They walk in the law of the Lord. They make it a daily habit. They seek the Lord with their whole heart, which means it's what they love. It says they keep his testimonies. It says, and this is a, this is a, a, a bold statement, they do no wrong. And it says they walk in his way. So those are the six things that the, that the happy and prosperous person, according to Psalm 119, does. The happy person recognizes that, that God desires diligence in the keeping of these laws and precepts. And in doing so, the, the, this person will be free uh, from shame and full of joy and gratitude that are the consequence of experiencing a close presence with God. Now, it's a grand vision. It's a grand vision. Uh, but I think it can evoke two responses. The first response, it can really evoke 
determination and courage. These are the people that, that see a challenge and they rise to the challenge and they want to meet it. For those of us that are like this, we must take heed, we must be cautious about our ability to actually walk blameless in the law of God. Who can say that they are always diligent? Who can say that they always seek God with their whole heart, which is to say that they love and desire God most of all, all the time? For those of us like this, we must be cautious about our self-reliance, our self-righteousness, and our arrogance. We will see that as the psalm unfolds, there is more to understanding and walking in the law of God than the perfection that this passage seems to envision on first glance. So that's the first response. The second response could be one of despair and discouragement. And for those of us who are led to this kind of response, uh, we must take heed and be cautious about our inability to walk blamelessly. See, this reaction stems from the same heart as the arrogant response. For the sense of one's ability to act according to the law of God is still centered around what the individual perceives is his or her capability. To the person who is encouraged and strengthened and wants to, to really act and perform those things, they're confident in themselves. And for the person who, are, who, is, who is discouraged and despairing, they have no confidence in themselves, but still the sense is about what they as an individual can or can't do. The next section provides some perspective on how to approach what this psalm is really saying about what it means to walk blamelessly with God and gives us some, some perspective so that we can avoid either of those two responses. So the second section, verses 33 through 40, shows that there is a dependency on God in providing the resources to follow God. And so I want to look at two things. Uh, in, this, in this passage, which Lawrence read, um, he uses a number of different terms to refer to God's laws and his rules. So I want to look at what those are and why, and then I want to look at what the psalmist is specifically asking God to do to provide uh, him with the resources needed to follow his word. So first of all, why all the terms? If you look at the eight verses, you come up with the following list. There are statutes, laws, commandments, testimonies, ways, promises, rules, and precepts. Eight different words in eight different verses. What do they mean? Well, just briefly, statutes. Statu and each one of these is very specific and different from each other. Statutes determine what you need to do and what you can't do. Statutes set limits. The word law refers to broad directions and instructions. Commandments are specific orders to do something or to not do something. Testimonies are warnings, reminders, urgings, stories from experience. Testimonies are coming from a perspective of, of someone who has been there. Ways are paths to follow. Promises are words and, and speeches, direct, direct uh, word and speech. Rules 
our rulings and decisions, think of a, of a hearing or a trial where a judgment uh, and a ruling is made upon hearing facts and the, the data from the cases. And finally, the word precepts. Precepts are uh, standing regulations that all within a community are to follow. So it's a very broad spectrum of, of ideas here that the Word of God reflects in, in Psalm 119. They're not just general guidelines. It's not just rules. It's not just commandments. There are positive things to do. There are negative things not to do. Uh, there are paths and destinations to, to, to pursue. Uh, there are promises to hold on to that give us encouragement and strength as we, as we make the journey. Now, in regard to these eight aspects of God's word, the psalmist asks specifically that God would do the following. And so, yes, there's this grand vision for, for the happy and to be happy and prosperous uh, in the eyes of God, and to experience that kind of life in the world um, is someone who walks blamelessly in the law of God. So, but there's more. We have to think a little thicker. We have to think a little deeper. We can't just take what at face value seems to be the case. There's a broader, more colorful picture. So the psalmist asks God to teach him, to teach him. Help me to understand what these things are saying. That's the second request, give understanding. So we can learn something but not have the wisdom to live it out. The psalmist is asking for, for knowledge of what the teaching are and then, and then wisdom to be able to apply it. The psalmist then asks for direction. God, which way should I go? The psalmist asks, asks God to incline his heart towards him, towards God, and away from selfish gain, knowing that his heart is going to quickly love and turn to other things besides the Lord. He asks God to turn his eyes from the worthless things, knowing that when our eyes see something, we want them. We want that thing. The psalmist asks God to help him to strengthen his respect for God and to strengthen his trust and confidence in God. The psalmist then asks God to protect him from, from reproach and from shame, from his, own, from his own sinfulness. And then finally, the psalmist asks God to provide life. Prosperity and happiness are possible, but not without God. And so you see here that, yep, there is a way to walk blamelessly in the, in the ways of God, but there is, no, that, there is no way that we can do it without the active resources that God provides. Now, the challenge to recognizing our need for God is very substantial in our culture. In contrast to cultures that have a high degree of respect for authority, American culture is, is supremely independent, as seen in our extremely varied responses to the COVID-19 crisis. We are highly suspicious of authority structures and institutions, and, we, and, and our move towards secularity reflects that, you know, that there's an affirmation that the spiritual world could exist, that God may exist, but the real characteristic of our form of, of secular life is that if there was a supernatural realm, if there was a God, they really don't have any bearing on our life. They really don't make any sort of difference. 
As long as, as you can believe in God, you can believe in the supernatural, as long as it stays within the confines of your own conscience and your own preference and doesn't leak out into the expression of, of statutes and precepts that, that put an obligation upon others. So it's hard for us as, as secular people to believe that God through his word provides the instruction needed for a happy and prosperous life. We think that we know. Why should we turn to God? For us, as, as again, as, as secular people, belief is sentimental. It's not substantial. It doesn't really mean anything. And this is doubly challenging for the church because not only are the people of God um, called to submit to God as authority, since he, he did create us, the world, uh, the heavens and the earth and all that is within it. So God is our creator, so he is our authority. Um, but we're also called to submit to other people as authorities because God is at work through them to provide for us, to protect us, and to bring healing and cleansing through them. So this is, this is a tough pill for us as secular Americans to follow. We don't think that we need outside resources for our happiness and prosperity. This is as great of a challenge to the church as anything else that secularity impresses upon us. Now the third section, verses 65 through 72, acknowledges the reality of life in this world as a human being. So we've seen that there's a vision for the happy and prosperous life. We've seen that God has to provide the resources to live according to the ways of God, to enjoy that happy and prosperous life that he provides. But we all know that we go astray, just like this portion of the Psalms acknowledge. The inevitability of pressures from the world to neglect the law of God are strong upon us. The inevitability, the inevitability of our failure to follow the law of God is as real as anything. We all know we're going to fail. But there's also an inevitability of God bringing discipline into our lives to draw us back to the path of life. That's reality. That's reality. The psalmist acknowledges the pervasiveness of lies that come against him. Lies about himself and lies about God. The lies about himself bring shame and reproach and continue to press him towards a cycle of, of failure and despair and discouragement and depression. The lies about God prevent him from seeing God's true nature. The world does not see God as good or true or even worth pursuing. In fact, to be saved in our world is to be saved from God, from authority, from someone who would have put obligations and requirements on our life. Why would anyone want to follow a jealous, angry, and oppressive God who limits freedom and limits our happiness, at least as the world understands it? For the one who ceases in the, in the daily meditations on God's law these lies, they eventually have their effect. If we continue to take in messages and narratives and ideas 
from all of these various sources, and we are not counteracting them with the truth about God, who he is, what he's called us to be, how he has created the world, and the vision of happiness and prosperity that he has. If, we are, if we're not counteracting what the world is providing with that, we will follow the narratives and pathways and teachings of the world. However, this is beautiful in how this psalm states this. God does not give up in his love and in his passion for whom he has created. He brings discipline to those he loves, taking them from the experience of the life that he provides and enables them and really pulls away his grace so that, they have, so that we feel the full effects of our sin and our rebellion. And in this response, and this is really a beautiful part of this, of this psalm. The psalmist draws close to God again and once again begins meditating on the law of God. Really what the psalmist is saying is that for a season he walked with God and meditated daily on God and his teachings and he got comfortable. He got comfortable and stopped doing this um, and affliction came upon him. Affliction came upon him, bringing a lot of pain. He says that his experience of believing the lies, engaging sin, and experiencing the affliction brought a new understanding and joy to his knowledge of God's law. He states this. It's an amazing realization. It is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. See, the psalmist deepened and grew in his understanding of God's laws once he saw real life. And once he saw that God's laws and commandments and instructions and teachings were really directing him towards a life that the world could not provide. We often see that pain in our life is a consequence of God's disappointment or maybe even God's hatred towards us. But this is contrary to the truth. Pain in our life is often the result of God's love for us. If Jesus is said to have learned obedience and later to discover maximum joy through the experience of pain and suffering, are we any different? Are we going to have any different of a process than Jesus himself had? We must learn through meditation on, on, on the law of God how to interpret our experiences of sin and suffering. We, shouldn't, should, we, we need to resist the thin thinking of, ooh, if I'm experiencing pain, God must be upset with me. That is thin thinking. If we want to draw nearer to God, we need to learn how to interpret the suffering in our life, which really, according to this psalm, drew him closer to God, not further away. The final section we're looking at today, verses 153 through 160, reflects the response of the psalmist when the beauty and the love of God is realized in God's pursuit of him. There is a recognition of the need for God's deliverance 
and for God to redeem him. So again, there's this grand vision of walking blamelessly, blamelessly in the ways of God. There's the, the, the acknowledgement of the need for God to provide the resources to walk in the ways of God. Then there is the experience of failure. There is the experience of walking away and becoming a um, astray from, from God and his laws. And finally here, there is the recognition of the need for God's deliverance and for God to redeem him. He has come to a place of indebtedness. It's the feeling that we all have experienced, the feeling that we have dug ourselves into a hole so deep that we can't climb out on our own. We need someone to save us, and we need someone to cover over and to hide what, what got us there in the first place, our failures and mistakes. The feeling of indebtedness, we want that taken off of us. The feelings of shame and reproach, we want those taken off of us. The word of God, according to this psalmist, shows with great clarity throughout its entire story that God not only establishes the laws for us to follow, uh, God not only brings us discipline when we break those laws, he's also there to save us. He's also there to redeem us. We need a fresh start. And the psalmist recognizes that it is God who's going to provide it. And it is indeed God who has provided us. And this is, again, this, is, this addresses the need for us to think deeply, to reject the thin thinking that is increasingly characteristic of our, of our world and of our own lives, and to think deeply. We see here in this section, again, the references to the full scope of the, all of the various words that the psalmists uh, used to describe the law of God. And with that, the full understanding of God's revelation of himself. See, if, if we see God simply as a rule giver who punishes those who disobey and rewards those who follow, we're thinking too thinly. We're actually thinking like a child. Developmental psychologists acknowledge that, that rewards and punishments are an important part of human development, but it's a part reserved for children. Prior to learning and growth that is embodied in models and examples and discussions and making decisions and experiencing failures and, 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 and the natural consequences that come from that. If we just see God as an oppressive authority, once again, we're thinking like a child. Good authorities lead and protect the way towards the flourishing of human life. We must move past the thin thinking and dive into the, the richness of the full spectrum of what is contained in God's word. It's a treasure that even secular scholars affirm that is at least as equal, and some even see more so, more rich, than, than the best of any literature, ancient or modern. It is narrative, it is poetry, it is epic, it is diary, it is song, it is letter, it's apocalypse, and yes, it is law. And in this complex mix, God and his ways are revealed. And it is mind-transforming. It is life-transforming. It is beautiful. It is deep. And this brings us to an application that is a most needed correction, again, for, for us and our world and our culture. 
in what is indeed becoming a more and more isolated existence, the need for community is all the more pressing. And this includes the need of the community in meditating on the law of God. As independent, secular Americans, when we read any sort of passage uh, or when we, when we feel the obligation of renewing our minds on the laws of God, when we, when we, when we are encouraged to study and to read and, and to meditate, we immediately think of personal devotions and our own private Bible study. These things are good, and they're, they're, they're not wrong, absolutely, uh, but they're really not what is primarily in the mind of the psalmist, and really throughout all of Scripture, it's not what in, it envisions for the people of God, people reading the Bible on their own independently of each other. Reading and studying and meditating on the law of God has always been and should always be an exercise that the people of God engage in together. In fact, the, 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 the uh, leading scholarship on interpretation acknowledges that communities of people that come together for reading and studying and interacting and discussing and debating text, the best interpretation and application is going to come out of a community process. Now, there are people that are gifted with those kinds of things, but they are gifted so that they can bless the, the rest of the community. So we're not all supposed to be the, the, the scholars and the, the deep students of, of Scripture, but we are all called together to come and to learn and grow and encourage and strengthen each other and share our experiences of what it means to walk in the way of God. Psalm 119 ends in, this following way, in, this, in, this, in the following way, this one verse. And this is what he wants us to end on. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. In the end, the psalmist recognizes what we all know of ourselves. We have strayed from the ways of God. But the psalm concludes with one final request. Seek your servant. The psalmist knows that God has been and will continue to be pursuing us. God is after us. As we learned last week, God created all things in heaven and on earth and that we are his most beautiful and prized possession. His most beautiful and prized creation. And he is passionate about his work. He is passionate about the art that he has created us, that he has created. And in this love and passion, he has pursued to save us from the ways of the world, from our own sin. Ultimately, this is expressed in God's initiating work of his love through the incarnation of his of the son of God into the man Jesus Christ which is the fulfillment of the promises. It's the fulfillment of the laws. It's the fulfillment of the stories. And it is that to which all of the Bible points. The scriptures teach that, that we are able to love because God first loved us. God loved the world, so he sent his son. The psalmist says, seek your servant. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did and continues to do.
That is ultimately the story of the Bible. And the richness and depth of that story and the richness and depth of that love are most experienced by those who respond to God's pursuit by reading and meditating on his word day and night in the context of the people of God, the church. Let me pray. God, thank you for your beautiful word. Thank you for the richness that it holds. Thank you, God, for the deep thinking that it creates within us. Thank you, God, that it enables us to see things uh, in a more uh, complex and and nuanced and, and beautiful way. Our own lives, our own hearts, our own minds, the world around us. God, we pray that as we move forward in in this challenging time, that you would strengthen us through your word. Give us understanding. All of these requests that the psalmist have made, God, we, we request of you as well, especially that final request. Seek us, Lord. Continue to seek us. Impress upon us the need for us to know you through your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen.